Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American Waterfowl. Welcome to another episode of the North American Waterfowler Podcast. My name is Elliot. I appreciate you listening today. I have a guest who has grown into a friend of mine over the last few years. I've got Thomas Hoke, who used to be with Virginia Outdoors Unlimited, but now his channel is Hoke Outdoors. I've actually been watching his videos since, what year did you start, Thomas? 2017, 16, 18? Yeah, I want to 2016 was like when I first started making videos really. Um, and then 2017 was kind of the first year that I was videoing most all of my hunts that first year. I think I made five or six videos. Um, right. And you were pretty, Thomas was pretty young at that time. And I, I can specifically, we've talked about this before the first video that I saw of yours, you were in either a layout boat or a kayak. I can't remember which one it was and you were paddling deep into the timber somewhere you were i don't remember if you're on a wood duck hunt or what you were on but you were doing it solo by yourself i think you were only like 16 in that yeah. video and it just came across and then you weren't really trying that hard at that time you were just kind of kicking out some content and i i just sat there and watched and i was like i really like this guy i really like <laughs> because you were doing the kind of stuff i like to do you and your kayak going deep into the woods where you get that feeling and it's like all right this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool. So his channel really has been an evolution and grown. I mean, the last couple of years, the, um, the growth of, of Thomas's channel has just been staggering. So watching him go from like 16 year old, just kind of throwing out videos to now kind of full-time in the waterfowl industry channel blowing up part of the flyways collective, which I'm a part of too, has just been so fantastic. So how's really everything going tonight, it. Thomas? 
It's going good. Yeah, I've just been uh, a man in the fort here at uh, DRC Calls for the summer. Corey's um, up in Alaska for a little bit. So I'm trying to get ready for show season. Got um, Delta and Squad Fest coming up and then Game Fair after that. And then a uh, show in Wisconsin to finish out August. So I've got three kind of big shows and really four big weekends because Game Fair is two weekends. So got a pretty, uh, p- pretty packed slate here at the end of the summer. So just trying to get calls ready for that and get everything uh, set up to make a few trips. Now I see a bunch of ribbons behind you. Those are hunt test ribbons, right? Yeah. Yep. These are all a little bit of UKC, mostly AKC stuff. Um, and it's all Corey's dogs. So he's, he has three dogs at the moment. Um, and all of those he's run through, um, either that, well, all of them have gone through AKC and I want to say all of them have gone through some of UKC as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And I definitely want to get into a lot of dog stuff because you've now gotten your, I believe it's your first waterfowl dog, right? Yeah. So we're going to definitely go through that, but I kind of want to go through a progression of your hunting, hunting life. So start out from what was your childhood like around hunting? How did you get into it and kind of move up through your first few years of being on YouTube? Yeah, can do. So my dad has always been, always been into hunting and fishing. He, you know, got me into it from a very young age. You know, some of my first kind of pictures or some of the pictures I've seen of myself from the earliest point on was me out in the dove field with him or, you know, out on the boat with him. Um, My first kind of hunting memories would be like eight to 10 years old would be deer hunting. So we would go up to the mountains of Virginia, the Blue Ridge Mountains, and take a deer trip every year um, for that Thanksgiving weekend when I would have off school. So we'd go up there and hunt deer for four or five days. Um, and that's what we did, basically. That was basically the majority of my hunting from like 8 to 14 years old. Did you we stay went, in cabins or camping, packing? What kind of, what kind of hunting was it? Um, it was pretty much just staying with his friends, you know, sleeping on the couch at his friend's house up there. And then, um, we had a good bit of private land access up there. He used to live up there when he was a little bit younger. So he had some friends up there who had land and we would, um, just kind of go out early in the morning and hunt all day long. So that was always walking, sitting, tree stands, walking. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> he put me uh, through the ringer, which I'm really, I'm super grateful for now because I feel like it kind of translates into my duck hunting life, but we would hike two, three, four miles up the mountain. Cause we, his thing was, he always wanted to be up at the top of the mountain, kind of like how we are with duck hunting, where we want to get into the part of the marsh where no one is. He always wanted to get right. up to the top of the mountain where there was no one else. It was just you and the deer and the woods. So that was our thing. He would typically put a big um, blind on his back um, because, you know, when I was eight, nine, 10 years old, I, I was a little bit fidgety. So he would, you know, hike in this <laughs> giant blind and we'd set up in that, you know, sometimes we wouldn't, but for the most part, we would uh, sit in that. And typically I had a shotgun and he had a rifle and uh, we were just trying to get, you know, some, whatever deer walked by really, we weren't, you know, hunting for a big rack. Um, typically if, you know, unless it was some big buck that I couldn't see, or, you know, I had really bad buck fever as a kid. So, you know, there were some cases where he shot deer, but for the most part, he was just guiding me and trying to uh, just get some meat on the table. So that was kind of how I got into, into hunting. And then we would take like a goose hunting trip every year, just about Um, our family friends, 
live down in a pretty good goose hunting area in Virginia. And so we would go down there once or twice a year. And that was kind of my first inter introduction to waterfowl hunting. Those were field goose hunts. And it was kind of almost a, I don't want to use this word because it has a negative connotation now, but it was a party hunting atmosphere. You know, it was 10, 15 guys and we would just hide in the hedgerow, set up big spreads. And it was a two bird limit at that time. So, um, you know, you're trying to trying to get shot, uh, trying to get at least a few flocks in before the hunt was over. So that was kind of my, that was my introduction to waterfowl hunting. And then the transition for me was when I got my um, driver's license. And I want to say, I don't know, I want to say you had started releasing videos right about the time I got my driver's license, because I remember watching your hunts and watching, watching Josh's hunts and saying, Hey, you know, I have my driver's license. I can go do that now. Mm -hmm. And I went and bought a <laughs> bought a kayak off of Craigslist. Um, I actually bought it before I had my driver's license. Because what year would uh, what year would this have been? This would have been 2015 to 2016. Yeah, 2015 yeah. was the first season that Josh and I were both kicking out videos. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I saw what y'all were doing, and I wanted to do the same thing. So I found a kayak on Craigslist. I didn't have my driver's license yet. So my mom drove me over there to go buy this kayak, threw it in the back of my dad's truck, brought it home. And a couple months later, I got my driver's license kind of right at the start of waterfowl season in Virginia and kind of spent that whole first year just learning the ropes and doing a little bit of videoing. So And by yourself? Kind of, so you learned by yourself? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, my dad, he he didn't really have that much interest in it, especially because I wanted to do the kayak stuff. And he was almost, almost didn't let me do the kayak stuff at times. You know, I would want to go out on a 20 degree morning and go paddle down the river. Cause I knew that's where the birds were going to be. He's <laughs> right. like, are you crazy? You know, you fall out of that kayak, you're dead. Um, and you know, of <laughs> right. course being a 16 year old, I felt invincible at that time. <laughs> so um, yeah, I had, it was a little bit of a back and forth with my parents at times about the safety of it all. But I was mainly doing it by myself. I did meet a couple people through um, the duck hunting chat. You know, I had an account on there and I would post if, you know, I'd say, hey, I found a good spot. Does anybody want to go with me? And I always throw out a little disclaimer. Hey, I'm 16. I don't really mm -hmm. know anything. But, you know, if you want to come along, I can hopefully show you some birds. And um, I was lucky enough to make some good connections through a couple of those people, a couple of the guys who are still um, very much part of my hunting group. So they were mentors to me, kind of the following seasons, but that first season, hundred percent, it was almost exclusively solo hunting. Do you remember your first successful hunt by yourself? Yeah, it was. Uh, and I want to say it's, it, I think it's still on my channel um, and might be the video that you were talking about, but there was this little spot I had found. Um, it was kind of just a little pull off on the side of a bridge where, you know, I was still within the right of, right away, but it wasn't a public area. You know, I could just paddle back in there and it was a navigable waterway. So I could throw out decoys and stuff, but I couldn't get out on land. So I was like, I was anchored to the kayak. Which, so, I mean, you couldn't get out and even touch your feet on the bottom of bottom. You had to stay I, completely in your kayak. I know I could get out as long as, as long as I was in the channel, okay. but once you get outside of the channel, like into, you know, side sloughs or stuff like that, or especially dry land, you were, uh, you were on private property. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I paddled back into the Cypress swamp and set up and, uh, there was wood ducks falling in all over the place for like the first 15 minutes. I just wasn't in the right spot. So I ended up, I think I water swatted one and then I ended up just kind of paddling around and jump shooting. Um, and that was kind of the first successful hunt I ended up with. I want to say three wood ducks that morning 
and uh, I just had a it was like I fell in love with the with the swamp that morning. That mm-hmm. spot, that spot was my go-to for like the next two years because I was like, oh my gosh, this is the spot. Like yeah. I'd gone on a couple unsuccessful hunts before that, not even seeing the duck, and I was like, whoa, there's actually ducks here. This is this is possible to be done. So it was really a, um, it was an eye-opening experience that morning, and that was that was the one that probably got the first hook in me, and then uh, there was a couple ones later on that like when i you know really got under a good flight of birds where i was like whoa this is something i want to do every single day for the rest <laughs> of my life right yeah everyone has that moment of like whoa this is it this yeah. is the deal for me it's so weird because most my first waterfowl hunt was out at shine bottoms we had done a lot of pheasant quail hunting and my dad decided we're going to go on a teal hunt out at the bottoms. And we didn't have decoys. We literally, I don't even think we had, I, I know I didn't have waders. We just sat on the side of a ditch and I got a shy. So we sky busted one like teal that went by, but there was just something about the environment. It was the water, the sunrise, the birds flying around. I didn't, I didn't have to have success. The environment just was intoxicating. It's just the water. I'm always, I'm just such a water guy. And even yeah. though we didn't do well, it was just, now we didn't hunt again for a bunch of years, but it was all, I was always kind of bugging my dad, you know, let's go back out and duck hunt. Let's go back duck hunt. It's just, it's just something about it. That's just different. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I can even think back to my, the times I was deer hunting with my dad and I, you know, we'd be driving down the road, going to a deer spot to go hunt in the evening. I'd be pointing out ducks in the little creeks along the way and, <laughs> right. you know, asking him if we could go hunt them. And we tried a couple of times and never mm-hmm. really had any luck. We, uh, actually the first duck I ever shot, we were deer hunting. We were set up in a blind and there was a little Creek that ran in front of us about 20 yards. And we're looking over this big cornfield and we have rifles. And so we're sitting there and we just kind of hear a couple ducks and I'm you know, looking around and my dad's telling me, Hey, don't move. You know, the deer are going to see us. And so I'm looking around and sure enough, here's, I want to say it was four or five mallards came swimming down the Creek and the Creek's not very wide, basically wide enough that you could just about jump across it. Uh-huh. So they end up swimming right in front of the blind and just started milling around and hanging out. And I'm just bugging my dad. Hey, can we shoot them? What can we do? Like, we got to get these ducks. I wanted to get the ducks. We aren't seeing any deer. We had to get the ducks. And, uh, he was like, okay, we can try sneaking out the back of the blind, going all the way back to the truck, which was about 300 yards away and go get our shotguns and try and sneak around them. So after a little bit of not seeing deer and the ducks were still milling around, we ended up doing that. And, uh, we were able to get, in pretty close on them and we each dropped one and it was like that was definitely the moment that hooked me i I guess i should say that was the moment that hooked me but in terms of like figuring it out on your own it was later on because at that point you know there was two more years until i had my driver's license and it was always i was bugging my dad to do it and he didn't he didn't really have that same drive so yeah um, when i did get my driver's license it was it was a freeing moment i guess of being able to really feel like i was chasing my own passion well, to be at that age to go out in the dark and do it by yourself. I mean, to be out by yourself in the dark is something that feels totally natural now, but I can remember the first couple of times in my life and did it. It's a little bit of an eerie feeling yep. when you do it for the first time. So to be 16 and be navigating like that, that's, that's ballsy really. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, I think it was just the fact that I'd spent so many, you know, dark mornings in the deer woods walking in miles mm. and miles. And my dad just always taught me, you know, you have a gun in your hand, there's nothing to be afraid of. Right. So, you know, especially, especially because we, I felt like it was an easier learning curve because we do have pretty mild 
weather in Virginia. So when our season opens, you're typically looking at warm enough temperatures that even if you did fall out of the kayak, you're not looking at at hypothermia. You know, you'd be able to get back to the truck before something bad would happen. So uh, that did give me a month or two kind of, I guess I call it a grace period to really get my, um, get my legs under me in the kayak and feel comfortable, uh, going out in the morning and dark, especially, and a lot of times moving water too. Uh, cause I, you know, that was kind of my thing. I really liked the, the rivers and stuff like that. Uh, our public marshes, I had a couple of experiences with them early on where uh, it was just incredibly crowded and I just didn't enjoy it. I just, mm-hmm. something about it didn't click for me. So, uh, very early on, I felt like I honed in on wanting to target birds on the rivers where I felt like I was pretty much the only one chasing them. Yeah, some guys can really have fun on a crowded marsh shooting birds, and and I mean, if if I'm doing well and you decoying birds on a crowded marsh, it's still fun, but it's just like night and day versus mm-hmm. being off by yourself. I mean, the 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 emotional experience is just it's not even the same sport. Yeah, yeah, and I have to I have to give you and Josh a ton of credit with that because I mean I, I think without y'all's videos. I don't know if I would have ever even had the idea to look outside of the public marshes. You know, I talk with a lot of newer hunters in Virginia and other states now, and a lot of times it's always, you know, what what public marsh is the best? And it's my advice is always, you know, if there's good public marshes, check them out, but don't feel confined to that because, mm-hmm. you know, there's plenty of other options. I feel like y'all really opened my eyes to that before I even uh, got into it. Well, one of the important things on a complex is learning where all the people go. Mm-hmm. You need, there are certain places on a complex that people flock to know where those are and then look on the peripheries because not every yep. place, but, but every place that I can think of has those spots that are just a little bit harder to get to that maybe aren't quite as sexy looking as far as what's in it as, as other pools. And, and, you know, you, if with enough work, that's why this whole Kansas thing is just baffling to me a little bit, because I mean, you see Josh and, and my videos. We're not crowded by people. We're not, we're not having pressured bird issues. We're off by ourselves. You know, it's just not that it's just a matter of effort. All the people that come into the state that I know they have success in the this whole narrative there that these few lazy hunters are, are running. It's just not, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. Anyway, yeah. I don't want to go down that path because I know you guys have talked from your past. I've talked about it like till I'm blue in the face. Um, so, um, so does your dad ever duck hunt with you now or it's just not his thing? He does. Yeah. I'd say after I started having su- some success the first season, you know, I would every time after a hunt, I would come back and give him the full rundown, mm-hmm. um, you know, and chew his ear off about it and how he should come with me next time. And I don't know if it was a, I don't know if there was really a, a turning point for him, but it seemed like after that first season going into my second waterfowl season, he was much more open to coming with me. Um, he actually, we had a fishing boat, an 18 foot privateer, and he had the idea of building a big wooden hard sided blind on it so that we could go out and hunt the rivers together when it was really cold. Um, and just have some more accessibility for him. Cause he is, he's a little bit older at that. He's over 60 now. Um, even back then he was 55, so he didn't have the best mobility as, you know, walking into swamps, kayaking in. So we, he had the idea of coming up with a different option for us to be able to hunt together. And we did that a good bit, um, for, especially in my last couple of years of high school. And then kind of when I went off to college, um, he just, 
it just our schedules never seemed to line up and we didn't get cold weather for a couple of years. So it wasn't really worth taking the boat out. We have an outboard on that boat on that boat. So you really can't get into the shallow um, spots that are going to be good during warm weather. So we are almost limited to really cold freeze up weather hunting uh, with that boat. So uh, unfortunately, we didn't hunt together as much during college, but I still try and hunt with him as much as possible. It just, it seems like turkey hunting is our time hunting together. That's mm-hmm. really what he enjoys more than anything. And I really enjoy hunting with him, um, with turkey hunting. Cause I, I don't want to feel like I'm, I guess it's not that I don't want to, but I, I, I enjoy more learning from him than me teaching him. And whenever I'm duck hunting, it feels like we're having arguments about stuff because I want to do it my <laughs> way and he, he wants to do it this way. And versus turkey hunting, right. it's just like, I let him fully take the reins and I just act like a sponge and try and soak up as much as I can because he's been turkey hunting for 30, 40 years. Uh, so right. that's that's the, the time I really enjoy hunting with him and do a little bit of deer hunting together still. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, We make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. I can relate to some of what you said. I can remember having like 30-minute debates with my dad about how each decoy would be set up. It's like (laughs) it would just be the most minute details. You're sitting there in the dark just like... (laughs) Just throw them out there and figure it out. <laughs> yep. He doesn't mess with me anymore. He lets me <laughs> run the show now. I guess I'll wore him down. <laughs> yeah, I think I did the same thing, but I can vividly remember our first season hunting together a lot for waterfowl. I mean, it was, I don't think a hunt went by where we didn't have almost a blow up argument about <laughs> the hide or the decoys or where we should set up. It was like right. we were just always on different pages about that stuff. So yeah. uh, I think that was a little bit frustrating for the both of us. So at the age of 16, you started getting into waterfowl hunting and you started recording at that time. Were you keeping track of your, cause I know you're big into analytics. You've always kind of kept a log of your numbers. Did, were you logging your hunts at that time or did that come a little later? No. Yeah. I was logging them right from the get go. And I'd say again, credit to you. I think I saw that saw you emphasize that in your videos um, and I wanted to do the same thing. So yeah, I mean, I could, I don't honestly know where they are. They might be on an Excel spreadsheet on my desktop at home, or they might be on Google drive, but you got to get those into the app, man. You can, you can backlog. Yeah, I know I should. I I definitely need to do that. But uh, yeah, I have, I want to say I have my hunts recorded from the first one that I went on by myself and all the way till now. So yeah, That's pretty awesome. extensive bit of data. So yeah, big oh, credit. Man. You've to got you. to get those logged in because you just think you use that system for the next 30 years, you'll be able to see every single hunt compiled and numbers and, and yeah, it's definitely a big, 
big bonus to have all of that long data. I, I only have data from 2007, so I've got a bunch. I mean, we started really hunting in 91, so there's just so much of mine that's just lost. Oh, that, yep. You know, it would be nice to have. It's nice to have those numbers just to go back and look at them, let alone because we're hunting a lot of the same places now that we did in 1991. So the, the amount of data that I would have about these places under variable weather conditions would be phenomenal. Um, yeah. If I had all that data, so that's, that's one of the, that's one of the things I really love is going back and looking at, you know, like I, I started hunting a new hole a couple of years ago and I've hunted it six times and already I'm looking at like, okay, it seems like I'm most successful on South, South, uh, West winds after six months. That's a small, small sample, but still, you know, sometimes with little holes, it did that stuff matters greatly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Have you ever tried going back and logging them just from memory, like some of the, some of the hunts from before you started logging, or do you feel like that would just be too much of an incomplete data set to yeah, really make I, any difference? It would be too incomplete. Well, I mean, I, I just, there's so many of them. I just wouldn't be able to remember exactly what species. I mean, I've got some pictures of stuff I could log, but mm -hmm. as far as the weather and, and yeah, it would just be way too incomplete. Um, yeah. I really wish because I want to get on there where you, um, a motion duck section so that you can put down like, okay, I used a spinner on this day and a watt, like a motion duck, like spinner and water. I'd have it in categories. So you, it, the options would be like something like a spinner, water motion. So you could go in and see how you've done just with, when you don't use any spinners, just with water motion or with a combo of both or, and different temperatures and and then you know i mean you can look at it for everyone that logs it so you'd have all this data of yeah people do better with spinners or they don't do or yeah they and i just i've got to get that on the site because there's so much conversation about whether spinners are successful or not and it's all just hearsay it's all anecdotal you know it's people's perception and you cannot get accurate data from well when we hunt you just, your perception is not that acute because you can have one good day using a spinner and all of a sudden it's stuck in your mind that spinners are good or vice versa. And so I'm dying to get like this hardcore data around motion in the set and, and how it affects things. I just haven't gotten done yet. Yeah. I, I would love to see that. I mean, I think there's, there's quite a few things that I, I look forward to you adding to the site over the years. I mean, I know it's time and money, so I'm sure right. all those things will be coming in due time, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that I already enjoy playing around with the weather and the wind. So I can only imagine getting to play around with those filters and really um, breaking down some things to specific variables. And as chokes, close as you can. chokes, gauges. I mean, there's so much that like what choke is better, what, you know, um, there, there's so much, and I've, I've, we've made a lot of change. Have you seen the new look, um, yet this yes. year? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really like it. Like what you so do with it. Really, really close. So for those of you that don't know, it's the North American waterfowler app right now. You can still find it under hunt stats and it's not, it's not officially out yet. Or by the time this releases, it might, I mean, we're like right there. We're just waiting for a couple of tiny little things that are actually, so it's so so close, but we've added on the leaderboards where you can sort it by three days, seven days, and 28, which I'm really excited about. So now, cause I don't hunt enough to be able to compete on the leaderboards, but I can go and look over the last three days and see over the last three days or the last seven days or, or whatever. And the dog retrieves too, where you can add a dog, put a picture of it. And, and so I'm really excited about, about the changes. 
I think yep. it's gonna I think it's gonna add a lot. Um so anyway, back back to your your hunting life. So you're sixteen, you're starting to hunt on your own, you're recording a little bit on YouTube. Were you having any success with your videos early on, or is it just like a hundred views per video or were they getting any traction? Yeah, probably like that. I mean, I think I remember a couple a couple cracking over a thousand and I was really excited about that. Uh, something that sticks out in my mind was I think after after the first season, I had a hundred dollars in my AdSense, and I was super pumped about that because at that point you couldn't take money out of it until you made a hundred dollars. Right. So I was yeah. just walking, watching that tick up every day, just a couple a couple cents every day. It yeah. seemed Like and like when I got to a hundred dollars, I was like, oh, the first milestone. You know, I can go right. out and I can go buy some new decoys or something. Because my yeah. thought was it. I never really saw it as a business or something like that. I just wanted to record my hunts for myself. And uh, especially because I was learning so much, I felt like, you know, at times when on a really good hunt, you almost black out, it feels like. And to have that on video instead where I could go back and watch and be like, hey, I feel like I did this right. Or uh, this was a mistake I made. I felt like that was really valuable early on. So uh, that was that was really the the idea behind videoing it. And then to, you know, if I did make any money, I just wanted to put it right back into my duck hunting. So mm-hmm. that was kind of the whole idea behind uh, starting a YouTube channel in the first place. Yeah. Cause back then you could start making money from the second you started a channel. Like now I know there's, I think they've changed the criteria, but now you have to have like a certain number of views and a certain number of subs before you can monetize. Do you know what those, what the specifications are on that right now? Yeah, I want to say it's a thousand subscribers and four thousand watch hours in a year. Um, because I know the DRC, I was putting some videos on the DRC page, and they had uh, that page has over a thousand subscribers, but it couldn't be monetized because of the watch hour thing. Mm. Okay, yeah, because back then I remember when I put out my first video, I remember my first penny that I made. And I was joking with my son. I was like, I got a penny. I got a penny. And my whole goal, because kind of like you was, if I told my son, if I could just get one check for $100, that would be the coolest thing ever. So just like you, I can remember that. That was a huge, huge milestone to get a $100 check. And for those of you that are listening, we don't get rich on this. Even at like, do you know how many views did you do last year? Do you remember? Uh I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. No, I'm guessing it's over 2 million. Cause you did more views than I did last year. And I did 1.8. Okay. Um, so I imagine you probably did more than 2 million. Gotcha. Views, Cause your channel's just been on fire. It's just been on fire. Um, and, but even with that many, it's just, this is not a get rich YouTube videos is not a get rich thing. It's not, mm-hmm. it's, well, it's good. Oh, I, I just feel like people also don't realize hunting is the lowest paying demographic of all uh, the genres on YouTube. You know, if you look at it, um, you know, I have a couple of buddies who do fishing videos and they're making in terms of, we talk about RPM and CPM, which maybe people don't really know what those are, but RPM is revenue per a thousand views and they're making double, if not triple what we're making. Um, and from my understanding, like if you go into other genres, like a technology, if technology videos, they might be making up to $50 per a thousand views which not to delve too much into that, but in terms of what I understand about the hunting space, that's about 10 times more than we're making per a thousand views on average. So yeah, yeah, it just, and the better your videos do the, the RPM goes down. So if you, if you're like in that niche area where you get like 10 to 15,000, you might be at like your RPM or CPM might be at like a 10 or 12, but once you really start cracking it and you get up a hundred thousand, then it crashes and you're at like three, dollars per thousand i don't understand why that is 
but that's always seems to be how it is for me at least. Yeah, I think it's kind of boring. I, I, I don't know how much we want to get into it, but the YouTube ads are based off of auctions. So like that's why the technology sector pays more. There's just more advertisers in that space and they bid up that um, that ad space to a higher price point versus mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's only so many companies that are looking to run ads on hunting videos. And I think the reason is that the RPM goes down as your channel grows is because those advertisers, they're trying to target a, a specific core audience. You know, they want males from 18 to 35 or something like that. Males in the U.S. from 18 to 35. And as those videos get bigger and YouTube pushes them out wider, uh, the subset or the amount of people who are watching that video who are in that core group of kind of what the advertisers are looking for just gets smaller and smaller. Right. And with duck and how many duck hunters are there in North America? I'm not even sure what the number is, but it's wanna... way less than people that are into technology. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So back to your, your hunting life, um, moving into that like second year of filming you're 17 you're 18 what did your hunting life look like and what was going on with your channel during that time of your life gotcha yeah so i at that point i had started um making some hunting friends you know my dad was still probably my my most common hunting partner but i also had met a guy named chase on duck hunting chat um and he had started to mentor me a little bit he's about he was probably late 20s at that point um and so he had some years of duck hunting experience and you know he would we would just kind of trade hunts i would take him out to a spot if i found one and he would take me out to a spot if he and found you were just one. mostly hunting in the swamp still right yes mainly mostly swamp. wood duck hunts in the swamp for the most wood part ducks, yeah i mean a little bit of mallards here and there um you know get, killing a black duck was a really big deal back then it still is but um i you know i think i shot one black duck in like my first three or four years of hunting so it was just mainly, mainly wood ducks and mallards, or yeah, mainly wood ducks and mallards. And uh, something that was really eye-opening from Chase, uh, you know, getting to hunt with Chase was that he kind of had this network of private land spots where that he had built up over the years, just knocking on doors. And I just hadn't, my mindset wasn't really at that point in my first season. I was just like, hey, I'm gonna hunt what's available. I'm not gonna, not gonna bug anybody and try and get on any private land. Um, so he kind of opened my eyes to the possibility of getting private land permission. And I started trying to do that a little more, started having some success with that. So uh, that was able to open up my opportunities a little bit wider. And uh, yeah, just hunted with him primarily and a couple of his friends. And then uh, when I went off to college, my hunting group. But was your channel growing during that time or was it stagnant? How was your channel doing during this like 17, 18 year old year? I want to say it was growing. Yeah. I mean, I had a couple, I had a couple videos that I remember cracked over 10,000, um, during that second season. And that was a big deal for me. I felt like that was kind of the benchmark for a video really taking off. So, uh, I was really pumped about that and I was seeing some growth on my channel. Um, starting to get, starting to feel like I had started to build a community with it. You know, there, I was seeing the same people commenting on the videos every time and I would, you know, have a conversation with them. And a lot of times I was messaging them on Instagram or Facebook as well. So I really started to feel a community aspect with it. Um, and I felt like a lot of those people also realized that I was a newer waterfowl hunter and I really didn't know a lot. So a lot of them were willing to offer me advice, um, mm -hmm. and try and, you know, be a lot of them were pretty blunt with me. You know, if I was doing something wrong, which I did plenty of in those first couple of years, they would, they would tell me straight up. And that was very, 
uh, helpful for me to kind of understand the rights and the wrongs uh, and the ethics of waterfowl hunting that combined with your, your videos and Josh's videos. At that time, were you just casually filming still, or had you decided, Hey, I want to see how, how far I can go with this. What were your aspirations with film? Mm. Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I want to say I was still doing it casually. I would, I would say for sure. I feel like it's just been a gradual evolution. You know, as I've seen it grow more, I've become uh, more invested in it, but you know, I still had the same couple GoPros that, you know, I, I I think I I bought my first GoPro the evening before opening a day of dove season when I was 14. And that was my primary camera pretty much all the way up until I was 18. And at that point I bought a GoPro hero five. That first one was a GoPro hero three. So, (laughs) excuse me, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was just like, I was just trying to put a little bit of money back into it. And really, I just wanted to document those, document those experiences. And uh, that second season of hunting, I had a couple really good hunts with my dad that, I mean, are some, nothing will ever be more valuable to me than having those hunts on video. Um, You know, being able to go back and watch those hunts is really, really special for me. So having those hunts I, I having those hunts and videoing them and having the videos turn out i felt like pretty good that was also probably a moment it started to click for me i was like i can really i can really document the full experience here um i feel like the first season i was doing it i was really just focusing on the kill shots i mm-hmm. i don't know if you remember but i would always do a slow-mo i would shoot i'd play a full speed clip of me shooting and then i would do a slow-mo clip of me shooting mm-hmm. um and so I started to kind of evolve from that. I wanted to just tell the story of the hunt more instead of focusing directly on the kill. Um, right. And so that was a little bit of a gradual evolution as well. And um, when I went off to college, you know, I was, I, I kind of had to make a decision. I was like, I could have gone and tried to pursue a film film degree or done a business degree. But at that point I was like, I want to go and get an environmental science degree and be a bi- waterfowl biologist and then I'll just, you know, have filming and hunting be a hobby on the side. So at that point, I wouldn't say I was fully committed to it, but uh, I did want to pursue it as a hobby more than anything. Mm-hmm. And so you went where you went into college for that degree and you ended up you got that degree, right? Yeah. Yep. I, I graduated with an environmental science degree and I actually ended up picking up a business minor after two years because after two years, I I almost decided to switch a made to switch my major because i did realize that hey i I don't know if i want to be a waterfowl biologist i i still like the idea of it it was very romantic to me being able to go out and do waterfowl research and ban birds and this and that but i I realized throughout doing my degree that it's a lot of just writing scientific papers (laughs) peer-reviewed research which i didn't enjoy that much so I was like, I think I want to take this a different round. I still want my life to revolve around duck hunting, but I don't know if I want to do it from writing peer-reviewed research for the rest of my life. So yeah. uh, I almost switched, switched my major to either doing something film-centric or something business-centric, but I decided to just pick up uh, the business minor to get a little bit of an understanding of how to run a business. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. 
Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. And how old are you now? I uh, just turned 23 yesterday. So. 23, right. So you've been out of college. This will be your third uh, second season? Year, this is my second summer out of college. Second summer out of college. So this, yep, will, only be your, this will only be your second uh, hunting season out of college? Yes. Yep. Because I thought that you went and you did the guiding thing, right? Yeah. So did you graduated Christmas or something? Oh, no, I, I'm not, grad- it's not, the timeline's not making sense to me. Okay. Yeah. So I graduated May of 22. Um, I did a full four years. Uh, I did that guiding thing. I guess that was my, that was the winter of my junior year, but that was during COVID. So, ah, there we uh, go. Yep. So I went down there in November or I went down there right at uh, Thanksgiving break and I told my professors that I'd got COVID. Um, so I was able to do all my exams online and then I Is ended that up. True? St- no. No. <laughs> you never got COVID? No, not to my, you, not to my man, knowledge. You must have a, quite the immune system. I've had it like three times. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I don't believe I ever caught it. I'm not sure. I did have one little one uh, cold that might be questionable. Maybe it was COVID, mm. but it didn't knock me down. And I never lost my taste or smell, which I felt like that was really an indicator of actually having COVID. Um, oh, so, I got that bad. It was crazy. I'll tell you about it when you when, in a second. Yeah. But, uh, and so then I did basically stayed down there all throughout my winter break. And then they still wanted me down there two weeks after my classes started. And so I told my professors that I had COVID again. Um, obviously, you know, it's a new semester. I had different professors, so they didn't really know the routine. So yeah, I had COVID again and couldn't make it back in time for classes. Um, and I ended up doing a week of those classes online. I felt like it was really, really tough to balance my time between the classes and working full time as, as at a guide service as a cameraman. So it kind of just worked out well. The guide service, um, they were having some cancellations due to COVID right there at the end of January. So I was able to head back home kind of a week before the end of the season, which um, I felt like helped me get a, a better start to my semester. Otherwise, I think two weeks of trying to balance that, I think I would have ended up with some pretty bad grades in that semester if that had been the case. How how did you get the job with what were you doing and who were you working for? What were you doing and how'd you get the job? Okay. So yeah, I was working for Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. Um and I got the job, I'd say purely based off of um uh Ben's Ben from the Foul Front, his recommendation. He knows those guys pretty well. Uh, and they were looking for a cameraman. Uh they were looking to film a show for their for their um podcast they obviously they have the big honker podcast jeff and andy um and so they were looking to film a show basically just about their guide service and a podcast what you know a lot of the behind the scenes of what goes on in the guide service so uh i was able to get that contact contact through ben and jeff called me up and uh, we lined everything up and so i was just working as a cameraman primarily you know i would help out a little bit with guiding stuff here or there but mainly my job was to run a camera were you organizing the show? Like you were just hitting record or were you actually like the producer of the videos? 
I was just hitting record. Yeah. So I was just filming hunts and storing the footage on, um, an SD, on, on, um, SD drives. You weren't editing or anything? No, no, didn't do any editing. I did, a, I did a little bit, you know, did some teaser clips for them and stuff, but, uh, no, I didn't, I wasn't editing full episodes, uh, during the time that I was, was working. Have those episodes of theirs ever came out? A few of them. Yeah. I, I want to say, I ended up editing four hunts for them. Uh, I want to say two of them were posted on their YouTube channel, a Sandhill crane hunt and a duck hunt, I want to say. And so those two um, did come out, but it was just, it was tough for me to edit that because, you know, obviously I was back in college uh, that fall after um, I had worked for them. And then uh it was just, yeah, I was back in college that spring after I'd worked for him. So I didn't really have time to edit it, edit it that spring. And then I came up here to work for Corey that following summer. So I was busy with that. And mm-hmm. then going into the next fall, I had college again. So it was tough to really find the time to balance trying to make my own videos and edit them, balance school along with that, and then edit videos for them as well. So I have never seen any of their videos come across my feed or anything. I've never, I need to go and and check them out. Do you listen to that podcast very often? Yeah. Yeah. I still listen, listen to it a good bit. Yeah. I, yeah. I enjoy a lot of, a lot of the guests they have on. And, um, yeah, I enjoy kind of the, the back and forth between Andy and Jeff. That's always pretty funny to me. It's wildly successful. <laughs> That's for sure. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. It's barely even when I listen to it, it's only like partially kind of a waterfowl podcast. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that's probably one of their strong suits is that they've been able to successfully get away from just being waterfowl centric right. and kind of expand into other things. I think it's it's tough to do 500 plus episodes just basic, based on waterfowl. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And your I market is just so much bigger. If you can get outside of waterfowl, then your market just becomes way, way bigger. Yep. Yeah. So. For- yeah, for filming their show, I felt like it really emphasized to me um, some of my weaknesses as like a cameraman and uh, just as a content creator, given that, you know, I was very uh, one dimensional in the way that I made videos. I had always just pointed the camera at myself and put a GoPro on my head and mm-hmm. basically edited it, um, you know, edited a hunt start to finish and done one right. hunt in one episode. And that was all I knew. So going down there and trying to film a show that was, you know, showing a week at a time or showing a different storyline than even just chronological hunts, you know, a storyline that went throughout the entire entirety of the season. You know, that was something that I felt like I really had to learn on the fly and something that I struggled with a good bit. That's a way different deal. Um, When you're putting together kind of a show type of thing, it's just a way different deal than what, than what we do. I mean, I've always just been kind of guy. I just hit record and I I hit record whenever there's anything interesting and then just kind of weave it together. I've always said that. I was like, I just hit record a bunch. I'm not trying to be a professional videographer. I'm just a guy hunting. The hunting is always going to take first place. No matter what, if I make a decision, it's about hunting. It's not about filming. If you want to watch it, watch it. If you don't, don't watch it. This is just my hunting life. And that's way different than high production stuff. Yes, absolutely. But some people are like, you know, Jordan's got a knack for being a little more creative as to, as does Titus. Um, But 
YouTube is just a different animal. I mean, people want to get to know you. They want you to be real, which is, I think, where one of the places you really strive is that you just you come off as very real um, in your videos. You just kind of are who you are. There's no glitz. There's no glamour. You're not trying to impress anyone. You're analytical in the way you think through things. And it's just this is who you are, which is, I think, why people one of the reasons why people really like your videos. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, that was again, you know, I don't want to be saying this throughout the entire podcast, but credit to you. You know, I just, you know, I, I saw what y'all were doing and I really liked how y'all were able to connect. I felt like when I was watching your videos, I was on a hunt with you. And I also liked that. I felt like your hunts were realistic. I could put myself in your shoes and say, Hey, I could go out and do that. Maybe obviously not in the same spot, not in the same state, but just the mentality of the hunt. Hey, I'm going to go back here where no one else is going to go and I'm going to find the birds. Like that was something I could really wrap my head around at 16 years old, 17 years old and say, Hey, I think I can do that. So that was yeah. just what I wanted to try to emulate in my videos. And um, I felt like you guys were probably creating awesome memories for yourself by right. videoing your hunts. And that was something I wanted to try to do as well. I appreciate you saying that it's, it's been, it's, it's been a weird journey for me because I mean, the first three years, four years, we had that tight knit group where it was every time Aiden, every time Dan, it was always me and my dad, most of the time, Aiden, most of the time, Dan, but it was like everyone, the viewers got to know this group of people. And my goal through that whole time was really more just let me show you what we're all doing than it was kill shots. Although I did really want to get kill shots too. And, and um, that was really, really hard to maintain as the people, you know, my dad gets older, Dan kind of stops hunting, Aiden moves off. I, I just couldn't maintain it. I just couldn't maintain it because then I'm hunting with all these random people and I don't have this crew and I can't, I can't keep together this like here, get to know everyone. This is the crew. This is, these are the ongoing jokes. I mean, back then we had all the, like, you might be some little joke that that was just kind of ongoing through the season. And, and I, I just couldn't maintain it. And then like season four, I, I just didn't, my challenge didn't do well at season four. Um, I don't know. It was cause that was the first year Dan really wasn't active. That may have been a big part of it. Cause he was a huge draw in the, those first few seasons. I mean, people loved him and for good reason. I mean, he's just a remarkable individual and character. And then I kind of got into chasing the algorithm a little bit and, and going away from like, Oh man, I got to get to kill shots within a minute and a half, you know, and started kind of chasing that. And then I'm to the point now where it's like, I kind of want to be done algorithm chasing. I, I, yeah. I just, I, I kind of want to just, and and also I'll say that in the course of a season you just get tired, you just get tired. And there's days where I just don't film feel like filming, but I want to I want to film. So that's the day it's like GoPro out here, a couple things in the camera. It's it's just really over nine seasons and however many hunts. I mean I, I've videoed almost every single hunt for the last eight eight years, and it's just it's a it's just a struggle to maintain the way it was back then. And I, but I look back at it and I, I kind of like, how can I find a way to recreate? Cause I think honestly, I think my best videos were probably like those seasons, like two, three, four. Although I, I like stuff I'm putting out, but it's just not the same. It, it's not the same as those days. So what do you think about algorithm chasing? What, what is your thoughts about, about that? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say, you know, if you're going to be putting out videos on YouTube, 
and trying to be successful, especially if you're trying to do it as a business. Like if you're trying to do it full time and have it being be your sole source of income, you almost have to do it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I'm very thankful that I'm able to work for DRC um, throughout most of the year and not feel like that's my sole source of income. And that I, I never want to feel like I have to hunt for money. Like, mm-hmm. I, like I, I have to, I don't, I guess that's not even the right way to put it, that I have to go out and make a video because I need the money for this next week. You know, I don't want to have to ever feel that way. So um, I always want to feel like hunting is just a fun hobby for me and that I'm able to capture the experiences when I feel like it. So um, yeah, I've, I've definitely, I've tried to stay away from algorithm chasing and, you know, doing trendy thumbnails and stuff like that. It's just been something I've, and I feel like, I'm a little bit, I don't know if this is the right word, but like counterculture, like if, if everybody's doing something, I always feel like I want to do the opposite a little bit. Right, right. So whenever I see, you know, a, a kind of a trend pop up on YouTube, if, whether it be titles or thumbnails or this or that, uh, it tends to be something that I just feel almost ingrained to try and stay away from. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And it's almost impossible to make a full-time living on on YouTube. I mean, really Josh, I mean, Bobby has basically done it, but he still has side businesses, mm-hmm. but ultimately he makes enough money to be his, he, he has done it, but outside of him, like even Josh, it maybe is, and maybe I might be forgetting some other channels that have popped up, but I mean, Josh is wildly successful and he still works for Roger's final approach three to three to three, four days a week. So it's like two, have an aspiration of having YouTube waterfowling be your full-time job. It's a delusion. It's just, just it's just not unless you're just a rare, because we, Bobby is a remarkable YouTube personality. Some people love him. Some people hate him. You cannot argue. He's a remarkable YouTube personality. He has a rare gift in how he translates things. And if, if you don't have something like that, you're just, you're not going to make a full-time living on, on YouTube waterfowl. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I mean, I think you see it when people just talk about him online, but like he is, he is the entertainment value in the video, whether it be a relatively boring hunt or not, you know, his videos aren't centered around what goes on during the hunt. Obviously it's a part of it, but mm-hmm. he brings his own entertainment level to that and the way he hacks and stuff like that. So yeah, I would say that I would consider that to be a big part of this, his success. But it can be fantastic supplementary income. Yes. And kind of, which kind of where I've gotten my point, it's like, you know, if I were to just stop doing it, it's like, I don't make a ton of money on it, but it certainly is helpful in my life. You know, I mean, all of, all of my hunting basically is I've turned over all my gear during that time. I've made some extra stuff. I've been able to fund the app. So it's like, once you get kind of addicted, I don't know if addicted is the right word. Once you get kind of dependent on that supplementary income, it's like, it is very important part of your life. Where, where do you see YouTube fitting in, in your life moving forward? If you're not kind of hoping to grow that in a way, cause, cause you can use YouTube to, I guess I should have said it a little different. You can use YouTube to make an income, but you have to have like s- different streams and different ways you're going about doing it, whether it's a product line you come out with or, or so it is possible to use YouTube in a way that can help you um, a- achieve that type of like, this is my profession, but it can't just be solely YouTube. I guess was my point, but how do you see that fitting into your life 
moving forward? Uh, I think I'd, I want to keep doing it, tr- keep trying to g- grow the channel and just I want to keep trying to create um, authentic, re- relatable content. I never want to change that. I never want to feel like, you know, I was listening to your um, your uh, podcast with Bobby Hayes and I really liked everything he said, but I felt a little bit depressed in hearing that he felt like he had to move away from public land because he was making videos. Like I never want to feel like I'm at that point where, you know, like, oh, for the, for either the betterment of myself or for the betterment of, you know, the entire hunting community, I need to be hunting only private land because I really enjoy hunting public land. But Mm -hmm. uh, I would, I just want to keep making videos. And like you said, I mean, it's a really nice supplemental income. I feel like I'm at a really good place right now with uh, getting to work in the call shop at DRC and also do YouTube where I'm able to make enough to support myself. And uh, as long as I can continue to grow the YouTube channel just a little bit year after year. Um, I feel like I can maintain my, my current lifestyle. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to get rich off it. And, um, obviously, you know, you gotta be putting away some savings and stuff like that, but I'm, I am only 23. So I feel like I have at least a couple of years where I can just really chase my dream of, you know, working in the industry part-time and working on and doing YouTube videos part-time and be able to support myself with that. And correct me if I'm wrong, one of your goals would probably be to hunt like you want. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I really enjoy taking trips. So um, YouTube, is, I feel like is helpful with that in two ways, really. Um, obviously, you know, it helps pay for those trips and you can go out and um, get sponsors for specific trips and stuff like that. And, you know, YouTube AdSense is or the Google AdSense is paying you a little bit there. But uh, also, I feel like YouTube has helped me has helped me build a really good network that's almost across the country. Where mm-hmm. if I do want to go out and hunt somewhere else, um, I typically, you know, have people uh, that I already know and who I've conversed with a lot and feel like I know them, you know, just in kind of a I don't know what you call a pseudo online relationship, uh, mm-hmm. where you know I have an understanding of the way they hunt and we have the same kind of feelings about hunting and I'm I'm willing to travel, a, you know few hundred miles up to, you know, a couple thousand miles across the country to go hunt with someone. Um, I had a really good experience doing that a couple of years ago, hunting with my buddy Scott in Idaho. I, you know, only had conversed with him on Instagram. He invited me out there. I booked a flight, went and hunted with him for three days and had an absolute blast and really felt like we um, clicked in, in a hunting level. So uh, that's uh, just kind of an example of a, of a relationship that I was able to build solely through YouTube that uh, opened a door for me to go hunt somewhere that I probably would have never had that never would have had the idea to even go hunt that by myself. I don't know how you feel about this, but for me, the best thing I have gotten out of YouTube videos is the relationships. Mm-hmm. All of my, except for Aiden, who I met out duck hunting, all of my closest friends I have met through my YouTube channel. Most, most of which are just creators like yourself. Um, but the relationships that have that have grown out of just hanging out with other people that do the same thing or just meeting people kind of like the way that, that you said it, it's I never expected that. It's like most of my friend life is revolved around um, the videos in YouTube. And yeah, it's a spectacular part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the community aspect of it, the fact that people can watch a video of you of you and feel like they already know you. I mean, that's, it's something that's 
unparalleled. You know, you don't really, you don't get that in anything else. You know, it's, it's almost unique to YouTube that you can watch a video of someone and feel like you have an understanding of their beliefs and uh, what they care about. Yeah. And I'm sure that you get these too, like on Instagram, someone will send you a little clip of them and their dog, like watching one of your videos. Have you ever gotten one of those? Yeah. It's like all these random people you don't know watching your face in their living room. Isn't that weird? It is. It is a little bit weird. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've heard, I heard Joe Rogan talk about it a little while back and it really stuck with me is that like humans aren't used to that. It's kind of been eye opening to me going to shows for DRC is that like, obviously humans we've always evolved and existed in these small knit communities where you knew everybody's face like you knew everybody on a personal level and that was how you interacted so like having someone come up to you and like already know you but you've never seen them before it's a weird thing but it's also like uh very uh, like I, I don't know exactly the exact word for it but it's very uh um oh i'm blanking on the word right now but i like, would say humbling Humbling. Yes. That's the word I'm looking for. Exactly. Yeah. You have to fight from it being a chest puffing thing because it is when people like you get in your local marshes and a lot of people will recognize you, you know, and, and when constantly people are coming up and recognize you, it does feel good. And so you've got to be a little bit careful of how you react to that kind of positive feedback. But I'd say for me, I am just so honored that people watch my hunts and like it. Cause I, I know that you're the same way. It's like a hunt where you're out doing your thing, especially by yourself or with a small group in that environment, it's a very, very special, intimate thing that you're letting people view. And the fact that they watch it, like it, like what you're doing, it's, a, it's, it's, it's special. It, it's, it's humbling. And yes. I feel so grateful, grateful for that aspect of it. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, just getting to, really it's it's been eye-opening meeting people at those shows and um the amount the amount of uh feel like camaraderie that we already have right off the get-go just mm -hmm. someone who i've met someone who i've been talking to for a minute i feel like we're already friends it's uh it's very humbling for sure right so i think we're going to break this into a two-part series if that's okay with you if you have a little more time to hang around so I'm going to close this episode out and we're going to have Thomas and I are going to keep talking. We're going to break this into two episodes. So make sure that you check back in for a future episode of the North American waterfowler. Thomas, and I have a lot left to talk about. I'm going to talk to him about um, his new dog, his favorite hunt he's ever been on. I'm going to talk to him about what he's doing in Minnesota and he's hunted a lot of the country, a lot more than I have. So we're going to get into some of that as well. And so, Thomas, real quick shout out where everyone can find you before we close this uh, first part down. Yeah, it's, it's just um, on YouTube, Hoke Outdoors, and then Instagram under the same name. And those are the two that I'm most active on. And definitely go check out his his videos. Oh, we're also going to talk about your river floats. And, All right. Because and, those are – I've got – at some point, I would love to be on one of those with you. <laughs> just, anyway – well, think we're going to talk about that. So thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Until then, you've listened to another episode of the North American Waterfowler Podcast.
Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.